Welcome to Our Missouri, a podcast about the people, places, culture, and history of the 114 counties and independent city of St. Louis that comprise the great state of Missouri. Each episode focuses on a topic related to the state, ranging from publications about Missouri's history to current projects undertaken by organizations to preserve and promote local institutions. The Our Missouri podcast is recorded at the Center for Missouri Studies in Columbia and is generously provided to you by the State Historical Society of Missouri. And now, here's your host, Sean Ross. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, or whatever you're tuning in to listen to the Our Missouri podcast. My name is Sean Ross, and we guys, we explore the memories, moments, and misfortunes from our Missouri. Welcome to episode three of the summer series focused on the summer of 1933. If you have not caught the first two parts of this series, we encourage you to go back and check them out. The first one being on Bonnie and Clyde and the Barrow Gang's travels through southwest Missouri in the 1930s, and the second episode looking at the incident at the intersection of Highway 40 and 63 in Columbia between unknown gunman, Highway Patrolman Ben Booth, and Boone County Sheriff Roger Wilson. If you've listened to the first two episodes, you know that I'm joined by a special co-host for the series, Kathleen Seal. Thanks for having me back again. Now, Katie, when we left off last time in Columbia, law enforcement were looking for a gentleman by the name of Charles Floyd, one of the individuals of Columbia who had seen the incident had identified him as a possible suspect. But as we discussed, Charles Floyd possibly was not in Columbia, Missouri. So where is Charles Floyd this time? Right. So the incident where Sheriff Wilson and Sergeant Booth are killed happens on June 14th. As of June 16th, very early in the morning, we know that Charles Floyd and his compatriots, Adam Ricchetti, are actually in Polk County, Missouri. They are down in Bolivar. So on the 16th, early that morning, Floyd and Ricchetti actually end up having car trouble. This is going to be a continuing theme for them that leads to a series of events that throughout their their kind of career over the next two years are, are really kind of detrimental to them. So they're having car trouble and they actually pull into Bolivar, mainly because Adam's older brother actually lived and worked in Bolivar, Missouri. So that's the connection of why they're there, why they stopped at the Chevrolet dealership um, as the Bitzer Chevrolet garage there in Bolivar um, business. Business isn't still there, but the building is. And they're actually there to get the car repaired by his brother early in the morning. Unfortunately for them, as they are still there, the car is not operational at this point, but the Polk County Sheriff, Jack Killingsworth, actually walks into the business. Floyd and Ricchetti immediately recognize Sheriff Killingsworth and pull their guns on him. Adam's older brother actually steps in front of Sheriff Killingsworth, uh, stopping them from shooting him at that point is how the story goes. So instead, they decide to steal another car that was there at the shop. And they also kidnap Sheriff Killingsworth, taking him with them because they don't want him to put the word out that they are there, possibly because there's already this kind of manhunt associated for the killing of, of Booth and Wilson from up in central Missouri, possibly for events that are going to take place later. Either way, they kidnap the sheriff, take him with them, and then they start heading north. So they start on what becomes Highway 13, but they're really kind of winding their way through the countryside, continually heading north. During this time, um, Ricchetti's reported by Sheriff Killingsworth later as 
drinking rather heavily, being rather profane, while Floyd is actually, I guess in a way, trying to humanize or maybe even justify some of his actions to Sheriff Killingsworth. Maybe he's just trying to get a little bit more claim to fame. It's like, hey, I've got a captive audience, literally, that it's going to report on this information, make more of a name for myself. None of that's clear, but they do have conversation. At one point, uh, Sheriff Killingsworth does state that they believe that they're being um, followed by either state troopers or local law enforcement. Get really nervous, and he's afraid that there's going to be a shootout, there's going to be casualties, possibly he could be one of them, and he actually weighs off the car behind them to stop following so that there are no casualties, which knowing both Ricchetti's and Floyd's backgrounds, both at this point, notable robbers, notable for having killed other law enforcement officials in the past as well, it, it was definitely a likelihood that that could have happened. So those are waved off and they eventually make their way um, over into Kansas actually. But before that, they actually end up kidnapping a second individuals. So they carjack another individual and bring him along for the ride as well. So they have now two prisoners um, that they have kidnapped, a second getaway vehicle, and they end up in Kansas where they wait actually for a little while. By this time, we're towards late afternoon, evening, but they wait till quite late in the evening before they release these two individuals as they, they drive up towards Kansas City. So they're on the outskirts of Kansas City at this point. They release the two men and then tell them, you know, wait five minutes and then walk up this road and you'll find the car. So they actually left the car for these two guys to be able to then eventually make their way back home. So the second gentleman, Walter Griffith of Clinton, Missouri, they were able to recover his vehicle and make their way back. So it's really not until late in the next day that much word has gotten out about the kidnapping of these two individuals. There was, it was somewhat known in, in Polk County and they knew they were heading north, but again, not a lot is known about what's going on, where they're going to end up and that sort of thing. But definitely over the next couple of days, you know, Sheriff Killingsworth is able to place Adam Ricchetti and Charles Floyd in Kansas City the evening before June 17th which is where we have the big event uh, now known as either Kansas City or the Union Station Massacre. But it's this eyewitness account and a, and a law enforcement official of being able to place them in the vicinity that I think really kind of seals their notoriety and, and possibly why they get so named in the involvement of these events. Something that's interesting, especially with with Sheriff Killingsworth is he's interviewed about the situation after the fact about the kidnapping and, and kind of being transported north. And he also suggests early on that Rochetti and, and Floyd had been involved with the shootout in Columbia. And he's kind of one of the major witnesses to suggest that theory early on, as we've kind of talked about with Lucy Clark from Columbia as being kind of the first one of that. So I thought that was rather interesting in looking at this of his suggestion that maybe they were also connected with that, which aids to that storyline of them possibly being in Columbia before they get down to Bolivar. 
But then there's also kind of a little bit of controversy at the time, too, with the law enforcement being waved off uh, as mm -hmm. they're traveling towards Kansas City and whether or not they should have followed or pursued or, or done something in regards to stopping them before they got to Kansas City. That comes up in some of the newspapers at the time, too, about whether or not law enforcement handled the situation properly um, in the context of who they were following ultimately into Kansas City. So I think that's something that came up and, and struck me as well. But, you know, when we get into Kansas City there, uh, they're not the only notable gangsters of this era uh, to be arriving in Kansas City on that, on that fateful timeline there. The storyline connected with Union Station, Union Station Massacre, really centers around Frank Nash, who was a federal prisoner. He had been apprehended uh, down in Hot Springs, Arkansas, on that day, the, the 16th of June, 1933, and was on a train headed into Kansas City and ultimately destined for Leavenworth Federal Prison. This is kind of what surrounds a lot of the mystery is who's out to get Frank Nash and is it to free him or is it to kill him? Yeah, that's another side of this story. Even the arrest of Frank Nash down in Arkansas is kind of interesting. So Hot Springs at that time was a criminal haven there you know law enforcement even down there some of them were would look the other way others were on the take but there are actually reports of the officers grabbing frank nash basically arresting him sticking him straight in the car and heading north there are reports of frank nash being kidnapped like some people thought he was literally being kidnapped instead of actually being arrested but they were just trying to get out of town as quickly as possible because they knew there were other people in town that would definitely seek to assist Frank Nash escaping even at that point. There was talks um, with the officers of how to safely transport him back to Fort Leavenworth. There was talk of getting a plane, of driving the whole way. Ultimately, they do end up getting on the train to head up to Kansas City and then we're we're going to transport him by car to Fort Leavenworth from there. But there's a big conspiracy that starts compiling. Word travels so fast. So that happens late on the 15th into the 16th. So during this whole time, while Floyd and Ricchetti are on the road headed towards Kansas City with the kidnapped sheriff, Frank Nash is actually being transported up to Kansas City. But word's already getting out to places like Joplin, Missouri, where there are people who are friends of Frank Nash, let's say, they're in Kansas City that start basically this massive plan to try and free Frank Nash before he can be taken back to prison. Some of those individuals include, and I apologize if I pronounce any of these names incorrectly, Richard Galatis, Herbert Farmer, Louis Stacy, uh, Vernon Miller, who we'll learn more about later, and also Frank Malloy. So Galatis and Farmer, I believe, are there in Joplin. And uh, looking at FBI files, so these a number of these individuals actually do get in trouble with um, police later on because of their part in um, this attempt to free Nash. So they're calling around. They know that Nash and law enforcement are headed towards Kansas City. So they start making calls 
start reaching out to people that they know are in Kansas City. One of them, Vernon Miller, um, is one of the individuals that they have there in town that they're reaching out to to try and and stage a, a break, trying to get him free again, which Frank Nash is, is known for breaking out of prison and escaping law enforcement. So this was nothing new to them, and they were just trying to do so again. Also want to mention other individuals that are kind of roaming the area as well. There was actually a prison break over in Lansing, Kansas, kind of during this time period. It's about two weeks prior to that, to, to these events. There was a big prison break of people who were known to Frank Nash as well and Vernon Miller. Um, those included Harvey Bailey, William Underhill, Jim Clark. Frank Sawyer, Ed Davis, and Robert Brady. Some of these individuals are recaptured very quickly. And actually interesting, there is even a few accounts where Harvey Bailey's mentioned as being involved in the Mexico bank robbery and also the shooting of Sheriff Wilson and Sergeant Booth. So again, he's one of those names that have been in the news and people know that he's escaped. So again, one of those familiar ones that, oh yeah, look, this is photo has been put around so people assume identify him as a potential person that was involved with these as well. Harvey Bailey ends up becoming another person of interest in the Union Station massacre as well, mostly because he's probably he's in the area, but then also his connection to the other individuals involved, Vernon Miller and Frank Nash as well. That brings us now to Union Station, the tracks, and this Missouri Pacific train that has come up from Arkansas containing Frank Nash. As with the first two episodes, I'm going to give a bit of a warning here of just kind of some graphic content that's going to follow this uh, regarding kind of the shootout that occurs in front of Union Station. When the Missouri Pacific train arrives um, in Kansas City, uh, it is idling inside the depot there at Union Station as passenger and cargo are being unloaded. And the agents on the train are trying to figure out the best way to get Nash from the train to waiting automobiles that are sitting parked outside of the station. It's a group containing federal agents as well as Kansas City police officers and other law enforcement officials. They make their way through the station and they get outside and they place Nash inside of the waiting automobile. He is placed in the front passenger seat while several other law enforcement are put in the back row behind him and another agent comes around and sits in the driver's seat. They are then encircled by several law enforcement around the vehicle at the same time. As they prepare to depart, one of the agents noticed two men kind of scurrying in between some of the other parked vehicles outside and is kind of alerted to something going on. So Frank Nash is placed in the front passenger seats. In the rear seat, you have uh, Chief Reed from Oklahoma. He was actually brought in and was part of the group that apprehended Frank Nash because he could recognize Nash, even in his, Nash was known for doing disguises, but um, Chief Reed was familiar enough with him to um, know him on site. So he was in the right rear seat of the car. And then in the rear center seat is actually federal agent Smith. So he's the only one in that car who is not injured. And then in the left rear seat is another uh, federal agent, Lakey. He is wounded. The two of them are the only ones in the car to survive, mostly because they're able to kind of throw themselves forward and get down in the floorboard a little bit to avoid 
some of the bullets that are flying their way. The officers, the Kansas City police officers, W.J. Groom and Frank Hermanson, who are standing outside of the vehicle, are killed. There's another agent who's wounded that was standing outside. He was standing on kind of the other side away from the gunmen. So Agent Vetterly was wounded as well, um, but managed to survive the initial gunfight. And he goes on to actually be a part of the investigation later on. While Agent Raymond Caffrey is in the driver's seat of the car at the time and is killed. He doesn't die immediately, but he does die of his wounds there at the scene. So there's some speculation the fact that Frank is Frank Nash is put into the front seat of the car rather than the rear middle seat, which is where, again, Agent Smith is sitting, and he's the only one uninjured at this time. Belief that that's where he would have actually been sitting so that they were actually trying to avoid hitting anybody in that middle seat, thinking that was Frank Nash. Or it could just be there was so much chaos going on and bullets were flying Frank Nash was in the car. They weren't sure. They couldn't see maybe necessarily where he was. And it was just an accident because law enforcement does shoot back at the gunmen. So those police officers that are outside are able to return fire. And one of the gunmen is actually hit in the shoulder, according to accounts from police at that time and other witnesses. They say one of the gunmen was hit, um, at least in the upper chest or, or shoulder at that time. So- Almost immediately after this happens, this is breaking news across the city of Kansas City. Within a day, it's breaking news across the United States and, and even in parts uh, outside of the United States as well. A, a newspaper search of various newspapers across the country shows that, you know, co by coastal, I mean, you have newspapers in California, you have newspapers on the East Coast covering the story. There's even newspapers in Canada and in the United Kingdom who are providing some some kind of brief coverage of this shootout in front of Union Station within, you could say, 24 to 48 hours of it. It was quite possibly one of the largest public mass shootings of that era. We often think of the St. Valentine's Day Massacre in Chicago in 1929. This is one of the major ones that occurs there in the early 1930s. But people in Kansas City were not unfamiliar with, with kind of major events involving kidnappings and things like that. If you look at uh, this era, we have prohibition, we have the Great Depression, you know, you're hearing about people like Al Capone and, and, and Pretty Boy Floyd, and you're hearing about Bonnie and Clyde. So in the newspapers, it's coming quite common. But even in the city itself, I mean, you have the kidnapping of, of businesswoman, fashion designer, Nell Donnelly in 1931, you have the kidnapping of Mary McElroy, the daughter of the city manager, Henry McElroy, just a month prior in May of 1933. So all of this is breaking in terms of news at this time. So it's quite shocking for the people to see kind of the carnage on the on the front parking area of Union Station. But it was just a, a in many ways also fit in with a number of events going on, not only in the city and in the state, but but across the country at the same time as well, which leads to then theories about, you know, almost immediately law enforcement is looking for the individuals who were the gunmen who departed off for parts unknown. So. Let's get into these various theories, Katie, because there are a lot of them and they range from plausible to eh, maybe kind of a situation. So so let's jump into some of those. What's one that strikes you as a as a notable one? So the kind of first one and the one, I guess, that is followed through to the end, I feel like maybe a good place to start. So 
initially there are a lot of names thrown out. Some of the names that we've already mentioned earlier in this episode, but the three that end up bearing the brunt of the focus and for a lot of sources, they believe that these are the three individuals involved are Vernon Miller, Charles Preboy Floyd, and Adam Ricchetti. So the belief is that Vernon Miller's contacted by the, the Associates of Nash down in Joplin. He's up in Kansas City, and he starts looking to recruit assistance for this attempted, uh, you know, kind of rescue or escape for Nash. The fact that Floyd and Ricchetti literally arrive in town late that evening, um, it's believed at some point, somehow, they connect and talk and Floyd and Ricchetti agree to be in on this. It would have happened, had to have happened very quickly because the, the massacre takes place early the next morning. So there was probably little to no planning if this was the case. There is evidence that comes out later through the FBI of a fingerprint belonging to Adam Ricchetti on a beer bottle found at Miller's home or the place where he was residing at that time, which shows that at least the two of them met recently at that home, but doesn't guarantee that the the two of them were in, involved by, by any means, but that's the belief and that's the manhunt that then goes on and, and takes almost over a year to come to fruition where uh, Floyd and Ricchetti end up being um, taken down by law enforcement. Other individuals implicated during this time do include actually some Kansas City names, including John Lazia. He was a noted crime boss in the city of Kansas City. Not a lot is gonna be happening in that town without his knowledge. There's some researchers that think that he actually connected Miller or some of his associates connected Miller with Floyd and Ricchetti. The people, you know, the criminals in Kansas City wanted to stay out of it, um, didn't want to bring that kind of attention to themselves. So they're like, here's some out of town individuals because Floyd and Ricchetti were known uh, to Kansas City people. They had been in Kansas City on multiple occasions. Floyd had actually been arrested there a couple of times. So we know they had been in town and were familiar with people there. So that's one possibility or that Lazia and had a lot more involvement. Perhaps he provided gunmen to assist Miller with um, the escape attempt. Other names that are thrown out, again, are some of those individuals who escaped from prison. So Harvey Bailey and Underhill come up very early on in the FBI investigation because they've got previous connections with, I believe it's Frank Nash, possibly that they were involved in the shooting as well. There's actually some eyewitnesses during that time that identify Harvey Bailey as one of them. Of course, Harvey Bailey is also one of the people supposedly identified in Booth and Wilson's murders as well. So again, like you said, there is so much media coverage around this event. But even leading up to this, there was media coverage on all of these other events going on. The kidnapping of Sheriff Killingsworth the murders of Booth and Wilson in Columbia, the prison break over in Kansas, Bonnie and Clyde down in Southwest Missouri. So there 
names, their descriptions, photos of some of them are being circulated in the media as being in the area, as participating in crimes very similar to this. So all of these names kind of get thrown into the mix as possibles. The ones that the FBI really hone in and focus on end up being Vern Miller, Adam Ricchetti, and Charles Floyd. Ultimately, Adam Ricchetti is the only one actually arrested, tried, and convicted of being involved in the Union Station massacre. So the three that the FBI focus on, Miller, Floyd, and Ricchetti, all of them leave town very quickly. There's again, eyewitnesses, informants, you could say, for both sides actually of it. Some of them say, yes, these three were involved. Some say, no, they weren't, it was other people. So getting down to the truth of that is, is hard, but what we do know is that these three do flee. Miller goes his own way. He is actually ends up, they find him, it's a little gruesome how, the, how they find him. So some of the details of this could be disturbing. So the three men go on the run. Miller goes his own way. Floyd and Ricchetti take off um, towards the east to hide out there. In November 1933, Vern Miller is actually found beaten and strangled to death in Detroit. He was actually a, a series of murders in Detroit of other known criminal and mobsters during that time. So it's possible, it's speculated by law enforcement that he got involved with something there and ended up being killed because of that. So now Miller's dead. Law enforcement can't question him about his involvement with what's going on, but they're still continuing at this point through the fall and into winter 33 into 34, still looking for Floyd and Ricchetti. During this time, a number of other arrests and actual deaths of other possible suspects, some of the early suspects like Bob Brady and Underhill, both of them are actually uh, killed in encounters with police in early 34. Other people are arrested and placed in back in jail for um, either other crimes or some of those that has, had escaped there in Kansas are ended up being apprehended and brought back to jail. But Floyd and Ricchetti really, they, they stay out east for most of that next year, just really hiding out. And it's not until October of 1934 that they really start making their way back home, essentially. Both Floyd and Ricchetti had grown up in Oklahoma. So the Cookson Hills of Oklahoma, kind of very noted hangout for criminals. That was the place where they went to lay low. This was home to them. So they start heading back in October of 1934, but again, they have car trouble. And by this time they've made it to Ohio. So they're in a field and they send, they had two female companions with them that they send off to get help, to help fix their car. And some of the locals um, note these two individuals, not because of who they were, but see them lurking around and actually alert authorities. So police come on the scene. Floyd 
flees into the fields and a manhunt starts up for him and Ricchetti is actually arrested. Initially, they don't know who he is until after he's arrested, but once they identify him, they realize who they're actually chasing out in these fields in Ohio. At one point, Floyd attempts to, I believe, steal a car. He, he encounters a farmer out in one of these fields who then calls police and they're able to locate Floyd and he ends up in a shootout with police where Floyd is killed. So now you have the second suspected person involved with the Union Station massacre who is dead. The only one who is left is Adam Ricchetti. All the way through the end, Adam states his innocence with having nothing to do with the Union Station massacre. He doesn't shy away from having kidnapped the sheriff or any of his other past crimes that they know him for. But this one, he always indicated he had nothing to do with. But he is brought back to Missouri where he goes on trial. He faces trial and is found guilty of having been involved. And it's interesting to me during the trial, other witnesses who at the time of the incident did not identify Adam Ricchetti or didn't really even give a description of him clearly identify Adam Ricchetti as one of the gunmen during his trial. So he is found guilty, the only one who's who's left standing out of the gunmen. So he's charged with first degree murder and in June of 1935, so two years after the massacre, he's guilty and sentenced to death. Initially, he is sentenced to be hanged uh, in that year, but at this time, the um, prison there in Jeff City State penitentiary is has built its new gas chamber so he ends up being one of the first individuals executed in the gas chamber on October 7th 1938. His brother Joe who's still living in Bolivar at this time takes Adam back and he is buried in Bolivar Missouri where there's a headstone for him. Side note of interest for many years flowers were placed on Adam Ricchetti's grave by unknown individuals. I haven't seen reports in more recent years, but it happened for many years, even after Adam Ricchetti's family, they do eventually leave Polk County and move back to Oklahoma, at least initially, but there were still flowers placed on his grave for many years after his family had left. So one theory that's always kind of struck me about this kind of has a similarity to the 1990s TV show, Early Edition, if people might be familiar with that one, where the main character gets a newspaper that basically tells him what's going to happen within the next 24 hours. The Kansas City Star published a midnight edition. So midnight running into the morning of June 17th. So the theory is that if someone wants to kidnap or even perhaps kill Frank Nash at Union Station, if they would have had the luck, you could say, or the prior knowledge about that midnight edition coming out and having information about his transportation to Kansas City, they would have had roughly seven hours to prepare a group to be outside of Union Station. The twist is that they didn't know if he was going to Union Station or if they were taking him straight on the train to Leavenworth. Like, would the train continue on from Kansas City into Leavenworth? So possibly they could have had a group of gunmen outside Union Station as well as a group of gunmen waiting at Leavenworth. Now, of course, 
no one knows that there was a group at Leavenworth that eventually just kind of dissipated and went away when everything went down in Union Station. But that's kind of another theory that comes out is that they were pre-warned about his arrival and that allows them to kind of show up. So hypothetically then, if you wanted to kidnap or even kill Nash, you could have had time to prepare that. Now it's a little bit difficult, however, to make sure that you had your timing just right with only a few hours to go. So a difficult proposition, but not impossible at the same time. Which really speaks to the fact that it was so chaotic and perhaps if they were trying to free Nash, the reason it went so completely sideways and he ends up dead is because of the limited time that they had. All of these events happened very quickly. There wasn't a lot of time to plan. So that could definitely lean into that theory for sure. If someone who was not connected with the networks in Joplin and other places mm-hmm. that didn't know about his arrival in Kansas City happened to pick up a midnight edition of the Star, they could hastily organize a group to possibly free him or to find him on the steps of Union Station or at Leavenworth. It literally could have been anybody. Well, Nash had escaped from the Leavenworth prison in 1930. Mm-hmm. So he'd already had that escape attempt and he had previously been sentenced to Leavenworth for 25 years in 1924 for assault. And his criminal record dated back to as early as 1913. He'd kind of been involved in several prisoner escapes from Leavenworth over the course of that time, too. So he has that kind of extensive network, not only within Leavenworth, but outside of it as well, with individuals like Francis Keating and and Thomas Holden, uh, both of whom had been arrested by federal agents in Kansas City in 1932. So by the time he is apprehended in Hot Springs and on June 16th of 1933, Uh, He was well aware of where he was going, but also he then had the network of individuals who were also well aware of where he was going as well. So let's turn then, you know, we've we've kind of talked about some of the theories, Katie. What's the impact then long term? I mean, this is a, 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 a scandalous event in Kansas City. It's the front page news everywhere. The images of this bloody shootout are 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 kind of well known to people soon after the fact. How does law enforcement react to this, but also, let's say, even the killing of of Sheriff Wilson and and Ben Booth only a couple of days prior? What impact does these events and even other events in the era have have upon law enforcement? Yeah, they have a really big impact on the type of involvement that the FBI, it's now during this time period, it transitions to become the Federal Bureau of Investigation as to what kind of involvement they even can have in these types of crimes. It changes, you see a lot of police departments, sheriff's departments actually requesting uh, more firepower, bulletproof vests, shields, even armored cars. Um, You get a request for that down in Joplin where again, you had this shootout with Bonnie and Clyde just previously. And it's really with the deaths of local law enforcement with state troopers and now federal agents. Prior to this, only one federal agent had been killed in the line of duty ever since their inception. So that really changes. And you do have uh, these law enforcement entities now getting more firepower to be able to combat what these criminals have. As we noted with Bonnie and Clyde, they were noted for 
knocking over armories and just they were noted for having many many weapons on them that they then used in any encounters with police so this is honestly where my first knowledge of any of these events takes place is that the Polk County Sheriff's Department put in for a automatic machine gun basically I'm not a weapons expert so I will not claim to be so but they actually request one and get one after the kidnapping of Sheriff Killingsworth by two noted criminals of Floyd and Ricchetti's caliber. So they um, actually get this weapon. It's at least in, in my childhood was on display there at the Polk County Sheriff's Department because it was kind of rediscovered, I believe, in the in the 90s. And nobody really knew the full story of why the Sheriff's Department had it, where did it come from? And more of these events kind of came back to light again as to what this happened, but they weren't the only ones. Uh, law enforcement across Missouri, but then also even kind of across the country, start taking steps to be able to actually come up against some of these very well-armed criminals. You also have, I would say, more of a concentrated effort by law enforcement to hunt down some of these criminals. So FBI really gets going during this time. Um, they make John Dillinger public enemy number one after he's killed on July 22nd, 1934. Charles Floyd actually becomes public enemy number one after that which in some accounts, some witnesses say really played towards his vanity. Um, there are claims that he was um, put off by the fact that he was not the public enemy number one over Dillinger. But again, no way to verify if, if those accounts are true or not. You also have in 1934, a series of crime bills that are passed which now makes it a federal crime for assaulting or killing a federal officer. It makes national bank robberies a, a, a federal crime, but then also fleeing across state lines. And then also if you kidnap and take someone across state lines. So this opens up, again, what the FBI is able to get involved with in regards to these different crimes. So because they have that national reach, you're no longer pinned in by city, county, or even state lines. You've got law enforcement that can follow these criminals across all of these lines. And also the FBI is given full police powers. They can make arrests. Um, and they're also now able to carry weapons because prior to this, you could carry a weapon technically, but you had to adhere to whatever the state law was. So carrying across state lines was complicated and just really not feasible at that time period before this. So now they're more easily able to do that, especially as they're traveling across the country as well. So you see a lot of changes happen and really kind of modern law enforcement, especially I would say at the national level and probably even for the state troopers, the level of investigation that they do with Booth and Wilson's deaths, um, really plays into the development and what they look like today in the 
um, capacity of what they do on a regular basis. It's interesting that you mentioned public enemy number one, Katie, because possibly public enemy number one A and one B had departed Joplin, Missouri a few months prior to parts unknown. And as law enforcement and other individuals in and around Kansas City are looking for the shooters connected with the Union Station Massacre, Bonnie and Clyde and the Barrow Gang roll into Platte City, Missouri, not too far north of Kansas City, only a few weeks after that point for perhaps fateful destiny of their own. But we'll cover that in part four. Thank you for listening to the Our Missouri podcast. If you would like to learn more about the podcast, including past and future episodes, information about guests and upcoming events, please visit our website at shsmo.org forward slash our dash Missouri.